So, <laughs> I'm going to start a fight this morning. <clears throat> Anybody ever change their mind? Yeah. Everybody that's married. Everybody that's married. <laughs> I could go a lot of different directions with that. <clears throat> anybody know anybody that changes their mind? Anybody that's married? <laughs> Isn't that a weird thing? Like to have something in your mind. And something happens and then it changes the way you think about it. You're like, oh, I was wrong about that. Or maybe it just changed and it changed into something different. But the way that you think about something changes. Could be an experience. Could be some information you got. Could be physical condition. Could be something you ate. I mean, it could be a lot of things that changes the way you think, right? It's a weird process. Now, have you ever changed your mind about something and didn't change your behavior about it? Donuts, right? It all comes back to donuts and pizza. Well, there's nothing wrong with pizza or donuts, but gravity seems to gravitate toward donuts and pizza. And as you get older, even more so. I'm, I'm, I'm changing my mind the way that I'm thinking about gravity. I'm not gaining weight. Gravity's just getting stronger. It's climate change. That's what it is. This is man-made climate change right here. <laughs> yeah, changing your mind. You ever changed the way that you felt about something? Yeah, change. It's a funny thing. And today what we're going to talk about is change, changing your mind, changing your heart. It's the word repent. And we're going to hear it from a guy named John, not my John, but a guy named John the Baptist. Anybody familiar with him? It's funny that he's not called John the Presbyterian or anything. It's weird. That's actually an R.C. Sproul joke, so I borrowed that from him. Uh, we're going to read today Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, and we're going to deal with verses 1 through 12 today. <clears throat> Again, we, I want to see the whole picture, and then we'll do 13 through 17 next week. We've been in this series in the book of Matthew for a few weeks now, seeing Jesus as King. And today we're going to talk about the King's Herald, Hark the Herald, not H-A-R-O-L-D, but the King's Herald. So if you would stand with us as we read the very words of God in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. The very words of God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were, being baptized, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, <clears throat> he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire." His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. God, open our hearts, our minds, our lives, that we might behold wondrous things from your word. We trust your Spirit to teach us and instruct us. We trust your power to change us and to bring about a repentance in our lives. Whatever the need may be, God, have your way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Pretty interesting, pretty providential that we're going to be talking about Jesus' baptism next week when Orlando gets baptized. And whoever else is getting baptized, by the way. Again, if you don't tell us today, we can do it. Okay? And just smidgen real quick. Baptism is your first act of obedience after you believe. It's a public proclamation showing people outwardly what has happened to you inwardly. If you, if you are a believer, if you have trusted Jesus for your salvation and have not been baptized, do it. I'll leave that there. So, today we're going to, uh, like I said, cover verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 3. And we'll start, I'll read the first two verses again and we'll talk about it. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, so many times we start these passages with a time reference, and we've got one here, but it's not all cut and dry. Last week, we left Jesus and his earthly family settling where? In Nazareth. He will be called a Nazarene. And he was about an infant, maybe in the two-year-old range, maybe a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger. We don't know for sure. But that's how chapter 2 ended. So they settled in Nazareth. Then, next breath, we see in chapter 3, verse 1, in those days. Well, those days aren't those days. Okay? Those days mentioned here are not those days at the end of Matthew chapter 2. And it's very important that we understand that. Um, we have fast-forwarded almost 30 years to get to chapter 3. So we saw Jesus as an infant at the end of chapter 2. We'll see Him as an adult here. We actually read it there at the end. So we've gone forward about 30 years. Now why do I say that? Let me tell you why I say that. Um, in Luke, we have some time references that help clear this up for us. Okay? <clears throat> Uh, Luke says, to identify the time, early on it says that John, whom we'll be talking about today, was Jesus' cousin or relative, older than him by about six months. When Mary shows up at Elizabeth's house, Mary being the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth being her relative, she, she goes away to stay with Elizabeth after she finds out that she's going to be barren the Son of God, and when she shows up, it says Elizabeth is about six months pregnant. Okay? So John is older than Jesus by about six months. Now we also know from timestamps in Luke 3 that these events that we're looking at today happened when Jesus was 30 years old. Now how do I know that? He gives very specific details in Luke, and in Luke 3.23 he says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Just so you know, we're not pulling these numbers out of the air somewhere. This is Scripture. These are the words of God. So we've gone from Jesus being 2 or 3 to Jesus being about 30 between chapters 2 and 3. Okay, that's, that's important. Now, why would Matthew jump from infancy in chapter 2 to 30-year-old Jesus in chapter 3? Well, what's Matthew's purpose in writing? We've talked about this. He wants to identify Jesus as the king of the Jews, the king of God's kingdom, the king who was promised who will fill David's throne. And what happened between age 2 or 3 and age 30 that would show that Jesus was a king? Nothing. Nothing. Remember I said last week, don't buy into these farcical, apocryphal accounts that say Jesus turned a clay pigeon into a real pigeon or healed his buddy when he fell off the roof. Those things didn't happen. Okay? We know that at age 12 he was in the temple and he was talking to the people, but that's not really kingly. That's just a curious 12-year-old, maybe a real smart 12-year-old, 
but it's not kingly. So Matthew skips over age 2 to age 30. So for 28 years or so, Jesus, the coming king, lived in pretty much obscurity, doing nothing kingly, even though he was still the king from 2 to 30. He didn't become the king when his public ministry began. But again, Matthew's point is this. Jesus is the king, and from ages 2 to 30, he was kind of the incognito king. And I wonder if his mom and dad really understood everything that was going on. But, but we don't know. So, here we are. <clears throat> a very human, very normal, very Nazarethish person until he starts his ministry, which is what we'll look at next week. But here, in the beginning of chapter 3, something very kingly is happening. And it's not through Jesus that it's happening. It's happening through a man named John. John the Baptist. So Matthew picks up his narrative here. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now what's kingly about that? Stay with me. I said earlier that John was Jesus' cousin. He was the son of a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And again, Luke gives us more details about them and calls Elizabeth Mary's relative. Elizabeth had been barren, but in her old age, God blessed her with a child who would be John, John the Baptist. And in Luke, an angel announces to Zechariah, while he is ministering in the temple, that this child John is coming. And listen to these details about how special John would be. This is Luke 1, 13 through 17. But the angel said to him, to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So God told Zechariah through the angel that this coming child whom he would name John would be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Now that's special. And he says that John will turn many to the Lord and will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. We heard that before anywhere? Got to reach back several weeks, a few months, to where we finished Malachi. The end of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Remember we said, then God went silent for 400 plus years. And God is about to shatter and open that silence with the cries of a man who's been filled with the Holy Spirit since he was in the womb of his mother. No prophetic words for over 400 years. And then this guy who the angel clearly said, he's going to be that guy mentioned in Malachi. The last time God spoke, this boy, this young man, is going to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. John will be the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy and that in so doing, he would be the forerunner to the Messiah. So that's a quick take on John the Baptist. Special. Jesus would say later, of those born among men, there is none greater than John the Baptist. So this is a big deal. Then he went on to say that even the least in the kingdom is greater than him. That's many, many weeks up the road, okay? Maybe many months. So here in Matthew, John is said to have come and is doing what? He is preaching. Let me go back there so we see it. Wow, wow, wow. In, the de- in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. Now, what does preaching mean? Preaching means heralding. Preaching means proclaiming a message. Note that the kings of that day and time always had heralds that went before them to announce their coming and to clear the path for them of trouble and hindrances. They were checking for ambushes along the way, anything that might be blocking the road. They were literally heralds who went before the king came up the road 
The king is coming. The king is coming. I'll make way for the king. And they're clearing path and debris. And if anybody caused any problems, they killed them. Get out of the way. The king is coming. Nobody's going to touch the king. And that's what heralds did. And that's what John's doing here. He's clearing a path for the coming king. John heralding something and someone, with a capital S, in the desert, the wasteland of Judea, apart from the city, roughing it. And when we, when we see wilderness here, we think trees. No, not, not in Israel. It's barrenness. It's, it's like tumbleweeds and just desert. So wilderness equals desert. There's nothing out there. Remember, anybody see Finding Nemo? They were down there in the dock. It's like wicked dock down there is what he says. When you think wilderness here, think nothing. There's just nothing there. It's like wicked nothing down there. So, so he's out in the desert. Now, why? John's an interesting guy. Okay? John has a message, a very unique message to proclaim. And the message that he's proclaiming in the wilderness is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I don't know if we fully grasp what John's saying here. Okay, He's out here in the wilderness roughing it and he's heralding a plain, clear, potent message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the Jews may have thought that they understood what John was saying, but I think they missed it too. John is saying, as of first importance, that there is a necessity for those hearing him to repent. Now this word is huge. The word repent is a Greek word, metanoia, and it means to change your mind. But not just change your mind, but to change your mind and turn away from something and toward something else. So I mentioned donuts. Change the way you think about donuts and don't keep going to donuts, but go to kale. What? I about said something I shouldn't say. So it's not just donuts are bad. That's not repentance. Repentance is donuts are bad. They don't help me achieve the healthy goals that I want. So I'm going to turn away from donuts and I'm going to turn toward food that helps me to be healthy like this, 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 and this. No more donuts this. Maybe donuts once a month. A donut. Half a donut once a month. But I'm changing the way that I think about it. And I'm changing my actions as a result of changing the way that I think. So repentance is not just being sorry for your sin. Some people say, oh look at him, he's repenting. Well, time will tell if he's repenting. Amen. Tears don't tell if we're repenting. Time tells if we're repenting. Because it's about leaving deeds behind, doing a 180 degree turn and going the other way and doing different things. So John is saying, first and foremost, stop what you're doing, change your mind, turn away from what you're doing, and do something else. John is telling his hearers to change the way they think, to correct faulty thinking and go a different direction than they are currently going. But why? Why turn? Why change? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, we don't get the immensity of this. We're looking back at this. And we're like, oh yeah, the kingdom. No, no, no. You don't understand. God's kingdom, God's plan is at hand. All that stuff we looked at in that Old Testament survey, all that stuff that led up through the intertestamental period to this time, now is the fullness of time. All the prophecies of the Old Testament, now they're coming to fruition. All the foreshadowing and types of the nation Israel, now they're coming into reality. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what's at hand? If something is at hand, it's close. The furthest I can get my hand away from me is right there. That means it's close. Sometimes it's right here. Sometimes I wake up when I'm doing this. I'm like, what am I doing? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And speaking to a Jewish audience, Matthew would not dare utter the name of God. Jews didn't say the name God. So what you're going to see through Matthew is him reference at least 30 times in 28 chapters the kingdom of heaven. Now, Mark, Luke, John all use the phrase kingdom of God. Matthew wouldn't dare utter 
the name of God to a Jewish audience because the name of God was holy. And they didn't say, they didn't even write out the name of God. So when Matthew refers to the kingdom of heaven, it's God's kingdom. It's the kingdom of God, but he's speaking to a very specific audience, and he says the kingdom of heaven, which is the kingdom of God. It refers to God moving forward with his plan to actively reign and rule in the lives and affairs of men. He had always. He spoke everything into existence and he reigned and ruled providentially and miraculously over all of creation up to that time. But God's doing something new now. God's doing something different. God's doing something much more plain, much more tangible. This kingdom of heaven was coming to be seen, heard, felt, and followed. And it was the hope and dream of every true Jew. God's people had wanted to see God reestablish the kingdom since they had been deported to Assyria over 700 years prior and then deported to Babylon more than 100 years after that. The kingdom was the hope of the Jewish nation. To the Jews, the kingdom was their kingdom. Their country, their people exalted to the pinnacle of society again. So John comes and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is establishing His kingdom on earth. The Jews were like, yes! But they missed the first part. Repent! Change the way you think about this kingdom. Because this kingdom is not about you. This kingdom is not about bloodlines and genealogies. Even though we saw that genealogy, this kingdom is is about God doing what God had said He was going to do for a long time. And it didn't only involve the nation of Israel. The kingdom was what the prophets had foretold. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, all of them telling of a day when God would move and show Himself strong for His people again. And the Jews would say, the kingdom. And it would have been music to their ears. God's about to do it. Why, He's even sent a powerful messenger, a herald to announce it. And things check out. And even another prophecy confirms it. First, oh, I need to scoot over because I forgot I went back. Chapter 3, verse 3 in Matthew again. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now this quote is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And Isaiah was referring to the return from exile. So Isaiah was predicting, hey, you guys are going into exile, but you'll be coming back. And there'll be a forerunner to that. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way the Lord make His path straight. And we saw last week that a lot of times even the prophets didn't really know what they were fully predicting as the Holy Spirit moved in them and through them. So this prophecy that Matthew is quoting from Isaiah is actually coming to a final and complete fulfillment in these exciting prophecy-fulfilling times. Matthew says clearly that John is he that Isaiah was talking about, even though Isaiah himself didn't even know it. And what was John to do according to this prophecy? He's doing heralding work, crying in the wilderness, preparing the way, making his path straight. That's what heralds did, right? Absolutely. And what a herald he was. Let's look at him here. Chapter 3, verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Uh Uh-huh. This would give the Israelites a picture and remind them of somebody else. A man named Elijah. So John's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He even looks like Elijah. This was prophet garb that he's wearing. Camel hair and a leather belt around his waist. So just imagine this one-piece looking camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist. you got a locust in one hand and some honey in the other. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So this was the garb of a poor man. This wasn't fancy clothing. It wasn't fashionable or chic. This outfit itself would be a testimony of how to be different and not to blend in. His clothes were a picture of repentance. Poverty of spirit is how Jesus will refer to it when we start the Sermon on the Mount, which is really exciting to think about, by the way. 
camel's hair and a leather belt. Even his diet was nonconformist. Anybody want some honey nut locust O's? That sounds good, doesn't it? Huh? Yeah, me either. Locusts! Anybody ever seen a locust? Big, crunchy, winged bug. You ever eat a bug? Okay. I'll take your word for it. I've eaten them like riding my bike and stuff, like they fly into your mouth, but I don't like it. So this guy's eating bugs and, and honey. And to get wild honey, how do you figure you get wild honey? Hard way. The hard way, right? Imagine bees and stuff. And dude is eating locusts and wild honey. This man was out in the wilderness eating bugs and honey. And he must have been a sight to see. But do not think that John was some dumb caveman type of person. He was not. This was God's messenger, filled by the Holy Spirit in the womb. He was odd, but he was surely brilliant and powerful. And as his message thundered out in the desert, it echoed all around effectively to the point, then all Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Listen to me. When God's Spirit moves, people will go to that act. Now, it doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. We'll talk about that a little later. It says here that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John, out to the wilderness, out to the desert, hearing him proclaim the coming kingdom. But that's not all that was happening. Verse 6 says they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now, this is significant. The Jews practiced ritual washings and baptisms concerning a variety of things, but they were chiefly hygienic about being clean and washing oneself from defilement or the dirt of foreigners in the world. They'd go to the market and they'd come home and they'd wash to make sure they get all the dirt of the world off of them. But this baptism here is different. And it's different from what we celebrate as baptism as well. This is the type of baptism that a non-Jew would have had to go through to become a Jew. It was an immersion for the purpose of leaving behind an old life and beginning a new one. So if you were a non-Jew and you wanted to become a Jew, there were a lot of things you had to do. Remember we talked about circumcision? That was something you had to do. And you also had to be baptized to show that I want to wash away my Gentileness. And when I come up out of the water, I want to put on my Jewishness. Now, imagine all these Jews going out to John and John calling for baptism. Immersion. Get in the river. Get all of you under it. Because you have to be baptized. This had to be an affront to these Jewish people. I ain't doing no Gentile baptism. I'm not a Gentile, I'm a Jew. But yet it says that that's exactly what was happening. To suggest to a Jew that they would need to be baptized this way would infer that they would be moving past trusting their Jewishness for this coming kingdom. And that's exactly what John was saying. We'll see more of that in a second. But isn't Jewishness the very thing that this kingdom was about? God establishing His kingdom in and through His people, the Jews? Again, imagine the affront to hear John say to a Jewish person, leave your Jewishness behind. Change the way you think about your Jewishness and leave it all behind in the water so that you can be ready for the coming kingdom. I can imagine some of them saying, I don't need no stinking baptism. But John's message had nothing to do with bloodline, but rather with a change of heart and mind. John's baptism was a baptism to show repentance. Now let me explain this. Listen to me very clearly. John's baptism saved no one. Nobody was saved when they came out of the water at John's baptism. Let me give you an example of that later on in the book of Acts. Paul says to some of John's disciples, 
who he runs into in Ephesus some years later. So these are disciples of John, maybe people who had been baptized at this time by John. And this is years later, probably, I don't know, 20, 30 years later, in Acts chapter 19. Listen. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. So it's very important to understand here, these people didn't get saved and then get baptized by John. And they didn't get baptized by John and then they were saved. These people were coming out and their baptism was a physical sign of them saying, I am changing the way I'm thinking and I'm changing the way I'm acting because the kingdom's coming. Please, please, please understand that. This saved no one. Baptism saves no one. Not even ours. Next week when Orlando and whoever else gets in that pool, that doesn't save you. We'll talk about that more later. But I want you to understand that John's baptism saved no one. His was a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. John's baptism was about repentance, not Jewishness or Gentileness or even salvation, but rather preparation for the coming salvation of the king in his kingdom. John was immersing people into a new way of thinking and their physical act of baptism showed their interchange of heart and mind. Not regeneration. And as they were baptized, they were confessing their sins. Now imagine that. The whole region coming down to the Jordan to a camel hair wearing, bug eating prophet confessing their sins and being baptized. Now it had to be quite a spectacle and an obvious work of God. Moving people from tribal and national zeal to contrition and repentance. But was everybody sincere? Of course not. Enter stage right our antagonists. Dun, dun, dun. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So we saw that the whole region was coming out and joining the baptism repentance party. That's quite a party, isn't it? Let's have a baptism repentance party. Well, amongst that crowd were some folks called the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now you've probably heard of them over and over as we've talked about the New Testament and as you see it in the New Testament writings, especially the Gospels and the book of Acts. They will be very much against Jesus and His ministry. By and large. But who are they? Well, first, they were two separate, pretty much opposing parties to one another. They did not get along with each other. But they were people of importance, people of high standing in the Jewish culture in their own way. The Pharisees were birthed in the intertestamental period. Before the time of the Maccabean revolt and rule. They were purists when it came to the law of Moses. They were meticulous in their efforts to keep the law. They supported the Maccabees in their revolution, but only if it would help establish the law of God for God's people. And when the Maccabean revolt and rule turned patriotic and focused on the nation and not the law, the Pharisees withdrew their support and became even more separate. They were deeply religious and outwardly pious. They were known for their devotion and meticulous keeping of the law and their own traditions of purity and cleanliness, where a lot of these washings come in from them. They studied, memorized, and propagated the Jewish scriptures, which, are, which is our Old Testament. These people were common folk, but they were very outwardly devoted to piety and religious living. Now, the Sadducees, on the other hand, were extremely nationalistic. They were focused on the nation of Israel, looking for it to be restored to glory. Now they only held the books of Moses to be binding, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, neglecting the other 34 books of history, poetry, and prophecy. They were power-hungry people who didn't believe in life after death at all. They were about power and prominence now for the nation of Israel. John MacArthur points out very well that the Pharisees kept the law 
looking for reward in the future life, and the Sadducees looked for reward here and now since there was no life after death. So you had some competing philosophies and doctrine here. The Pharisees would have hated the Roman ways and culture. The Sadducees would have blended in very well with them looking for power from them. As a matter of fact, the Sadducees were power grabbers and would have, been prominent, would have had prominent places in priestly roles. So when you hear chief priests, most of those were Sadducees having bought their way into power there or having been born into it through a powerful family. So Pharisees would have been exalted among the common folk as pious and Sadducees would have been recognized by the commoners as the powerful people. So, these two rival disagreeing factions were coming out to John in the wilderness along with the crowd because, well, they wanted to know what all the hubbub was about. And they heard kingdom. And the Pharisees were thinking coming kingdom. Sadducees were thinking kingdom now. They wanted a piece of the power and the influence being exerted by John. And I'm sure that they wanted to correct any deficiencies in his teaching. And John sniffs it out pretty quickly. He doesn't welcome them. Glad to have our distinguished guest today from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. No, rather, not letting them jump on his ministry's bandwagon, he absolutely flays them. Instead of a warm welcome, he greets them with, You brood of vipers! <laughs> Imagine that. Forget this, I shake you warmly by the hand stuff. No, he calls them a bunch of snakes. And if you're a snake, who does that associate you with? Right? Go back to Genesis. Who was it that deceived Eve in the garden? You brood of vipers, you snakes. You serpent spawn from Eden. Jesus would actually say later, Jesus had no mercy on these guys. He says to them, You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies and you are his children. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Yeah. What about seeker friendliness, right? <laughs> Dang, Jesus. Dang, John. It's almost sad how bad these guys are shown to be. But be very clear. They are not advancing God's kingdom. They are pursuing their own, and that is patently anti-Christ. And they stand under the wrath of God. John asks them who warned, who warned them to flee from this wrath to come to that point even. Who told you to get right? If you want to get right, he says, bear fruit that shows that you have repented, changed your mind and your ways. And John knows they must have had a defense in mind against their need to repent and be baptized. And he goes straight for the jugular in verse 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, indeed. And for the Jew, being an ancestor of Abraham meant that they were special. One commentator put it this way, the rabbis taught that Abraham was such an exceptionally good man that he had built up a treasury of merit that covered all the needs of all of his descendants. Oh, that's what the rabbis taught about being Jewish. It's like Abraham was so good that God wouldn't think of not blessing anyone who was his ancestor because, well, Abraham... It does sound very Romanish, Romish. And so John, in proclaiming the, this message of repentance, addresses this Abraham deal straight and square. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? If you're here to repent, then great. But if you're thinking that you don't have to repent because you're from Abraham's family, well then think again. God is calling people, all people, to repent, not point to their heritage. If you think Abraham's going to bail you out in any way, well then understand that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And that either John meant literal rocks, or maybe he was referring to the stone-cold dead Gentiles who were being baptized and repenting all around them. Either way, God is able to work miracles and make dead things live and make people who aren't Abraham's offspring receive the blessing He had promised to Abraham. Repent. Don't trust your bloodline. Why? Verse 10. Even now, 
The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John goes on to say that the coming judgment is not out there somewhere. Not only is the kingdom at hand, but the judgment is at hand too. Even now, even now, he says, the axe of judgment is cutting at the very foundation of the tree. Now, Israel was often depicted as an olive tree. You might remember that from Romans when we talked about that. And John is saying here that the tree that does not bear good fruit is to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And Matthew will repeatedly use fire as a symbol of judgment. Chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 13, chapter 18, chapter 25. John is saying the fire of judgment is here. It's imminent. So repent now! Don't lean on your old way of thinking or acting in tradition or power, but rather rethink your whole means of salvation and change your ways. Especially you pious Pharisees and you powerful Sadducees. No one is exempt from the soon coming judgment against unfruitful humans. And if you're thinking that John's baptism is an end in and of itself, well rethink that too. He knew his, well, his role very well. Verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John knew that he was a forerunner. John knew he was not the big story here. What John was doing was preparing the way. Remember the herald. Water baptism showing repentance is good, but it is not enough. John's ministry was necessary, but it was not sufficient. John tells of the one who is coming after him and says this coming one is mightier than John. John says he's not even worthy to be like the slaves whose job it was to carry his master's shoes when relating to this coming one. The coming one was to be of much greater esteem than, than, evil, than even the wildly popular and effective John. The coming one would exceed water baptism and repentance and would baptize or immerse people into the very Holy Spirit of God. The structure of the grammar makes it literally say, He it is and no other will do this. Nobody else could baptize people with the Holy Spirit except God Himself. Which is who Jesus was. But not only the Holy Spirit, He'll baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Now what does it mean to be immersed into fire? This is different than the fire of judgment. But rather, this is the burning away of sin and desire for the world by the very Holy Spirit people are being baptized into. God Himself was coming to do this. It was at hand. The kingdom was at hand. Repentance is a good start, but it's not enough in and of itself. It has to lead to God intervening and doing what only God can do, which is literally making us share life with Him. No water does that. No repentance does that. And he will be able to tell who is his. We see this as we finish with verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The analogy is one of a farmer who had a winning, winnowing fork, kind of like a, like a big long leaf rake and rake. And they'd scoop up everything that was there that they had harvested and they'd throw it up in the air and the wheat kernel was heavy enough to fall. But the chaff, which is the husk and the unusable part of the plant, was light enough that the wind blew it away. So you'd have the wheat kernels here in a pile and you'd have the chaff that got kind of blew over here by the, uh, by the wind. They'd gather the wheat into the master's barn and they'd take the chaff and they'd burn it up. And that's exactly what John is saying is going to happen here. His winnowing fork is in his hand. It's here. It's happening. So get ready. Prepare yourself. Because either you're going to get thrown up in the air and fall down into the valuable wheat, or you're going to get blown away as chaff and get burned up in the fire. The coming one already has his winnowing fork in his hand. He's about to come and separate the good from the bad, the useful from the useless. And after he does his work, if you are useless chaff, you will be burned with unquenchable fire. And the wheat will be gathered into his barn, useful fruit for the master. So John reiterates the immediacy of this. Don't dilly, don't dally, repent now or else. So, Matthew in an effort to establish the kingship of Jesus, focused in today on the king's herald, John the Baptist. 
And the herald's message was simple. Repent because the king is coming. And he's coming in and with his kingdom. And while he welcomed all those who came to show their repentance through confession and baptism, he skewered those who came to just put on a show for their own benefit and social standing, even if they were the highly regarded religious heroes of the day. So, the question for us now is, how do we apply this? Well, it revolves around repentance, obviously, because that's the point of the passage today. And we'll focus in on repentance in three realms. Sanitation, salvation, and sanctification. Sanitation is first. Many thanks to Lily, who came up with this application point heading. I was looking for a word that started with an S and ended in Asian that denoted false repentance. And she said immediately, sanitation. I'm like, well, that just might work. I had salvation and sanctification, but I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I'm like, San- sanitation. It's sanitation. You're right. So this refers to an act that gives an outward showy repentance. That's what we saw in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They came out and were being baptized because it was what everybody else was doing. And probably to get in on the action for their own standing in everybody's eyes. And John absolutely unloaded on them. And Jesus will later too. He calls them scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! And a repentance revolving around sanitation is a hypocritical repentance and not a true repentance. John absolutely unloaded on them. Jesus will later. John calls them vipers and told them to bring forth fruits of true repentance. So what's this mean for us? It shows us that God is not interested in an outward show of piety that impresses others but rather an inward heart of sorrow for sin and a mind that truly hates sin and deeds show that are not sinful. Now we'll see all through Matthew and we can see all through the Gospels that Jesus is most forthright and harsh with the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. That's why they're sad, you see. Sorry. (laughs) Borrowed that one from John MacArthur, by the way. That's... Because their actions showed a desire for the applause of men and standing in public places over and above pleasing God. That's sanitized repentance. I'm going to clean the outside of the cup, but inside I'm full of, Jesus would say, dead man's bones. Paul referenced Timothy, and he said that his mom and his grandma had imparted to him a sincere faith. That word sincere is anupokritos, and it means unskilled in the art of acting. So when you're sincere, you can't act. And sanitized repentance is acting. It's railing against sin when you're around church people and going home and doing nasty things on your computer you shouldn't do. Sanitized repentance makes yourself look good in the eyes of men, but God sees your heart. We see a picture of this in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. In instructions to bondservants, Paul says this, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Did you see that back in verse 6? Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Sanitized repentance is eye service. Sanitized repentance is pleasing people. And it's not true. And people who repent only to sanitize themselves in their own minds and in the eyes of everybody else are not saved. It's a play. It's an act. Sanitation. There's another repentance that leads to salvation. But be very careful here. I said very vehemently, clearly, John's baptism saved no one. 
The command is to repent. But don't make the mistake of thinking that we have to do something before God can save us. Be very careful. John was preaching repentance to prepare the way before the coming of the Savior. This is not saying, get yourself right so you can get saved. Think Saul on the road to Tarsus. Did Saul repent? After Jesus showed up, he did. But he didn't repent in preparation for Jesus coming. So do not think that the command from today is repent so that you can get saved. That is getting the cart before the horse. I fully recommend to you a book by Sinclair Ferguson by the title of The Whole Christ that talks about this and deals with it. It's a fantastic book. Because if we tell people you've got to repent before you can be saved, we're telling them to lean on their own understanding to do their deeds so that they can get saved. And we do not believe that. We are not saved by repentance alone. We are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, as foretold and told in the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Your repentance does not save you. You say, but doesn't the Bible say in many places, repent and be baptized, repent and be saved? Yes, yes it does. But the repentance of salvation takes us to the thought of the ordus salutis or the order of salvation. Jesus said what to Nicodemus in John 3, 3? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you repent, you cannot see the kingdom of God? No. John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoops. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The new birth brings about in us the change of heart and mind that is our repentance upon salvation. It happens in the moment God breathes the breath of His life into us. Salvation is a moment of repentance when our dead hearts are made alive to the truth of God and we have a change of heart. God said in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel that He would make a new covenant with His people and He said in the process He would give His people a heart of flesh to take the place of the heart of stone. It's this heart of flesh that responds with repentance to the call and the power of God. To boil it down as simple as I can say it, dead people don't repent. They can't. Possum theology. I see a dead possum on the road. And I walk over with a stick. I'm like, dude, you better get up. There's a rig behind me. It's going to hit you. Get up. Wrath is coming. Eighteen wheels are coming. Get up. Move. Run. Go, go, go. Stupid possum. Dead possum. You better get I'm just gonna I'm not I'm not wasting my time on you. You're not even listening to me. That possum needs life before it can get up and get out of the way of the wrath to come. Dead people can't repent. But newly born people can. Newly reborn people can. Which leads us to our last point. Sanitation, salvation, sanctification. You are not finished repenting once you are converted. It's quite the opposite. You have just started repenting when you're born again. Martin Luther said in his first thesis, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. We never stop repenting. Steve and I were talking about this Wednesday night about how it's like you're going along in your Christian life and you're like, hey, okay, yeah, I, I feel better. I, did, I, do, I think different about this. I'm doing different. And then God puts His finger on something else. Okay. Then you get through that and you repent of that. Then what does God do? God puts His finger on something else. It wasn't wrong for the rich young ruler to have everything he had, but the second that Jesus said, sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me, the second he didn't do that, then it was sin. So our life as Christians is a life of repentance. Moving from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And what was sin before, or what was sin now, may not have been sin before. That's tricky. 
But that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit of God, to convict us of our sin in our present circumstance so that we can repent and turn away from it. We never stop repenting. We never stop challenging and changing our minds about our sin, our sins and, our, and living out our salvation. If you are a Christian, you are called to be repenting. Now these Jews, these people that were coming down to John, they're thinking, okay, I did the John thing. I got baptized and everything, which I really shouldn't have had to do because I'm a Jew. But I did it. So now I'm good. And they missed the kingdom when it came. Because it was a call to prepare your heart for continual repentance. John's baptism saved nobody. But the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world came and pronounced life and life abundantly. And He spoke life into people who became repentant people and who lived out the rest of their lives repenting. And listen, this is not sackcloth and ashes all the time. It can be. Sometimes God puts His finger on something and it absolutely crushes you. And in your repentance there are tears and sorrow. And sometimes it's like, God, you have delivered me from the power of this sin. And there's celebration. It's what we celebrate every Sunday when we come up here. There's sin present in my life. And there's sins that I see in my past that aren't there anymore. And I come up here and I remember my sins, past, present, and future. And I repent of them week after week after week and say, Jesus, your flesh, your blood are true food and true drink. And I want you more than I want these things, even as they call out to me now. Repentance means I want you more. And I'll pluck my eye out and I'll cut my hand off if I have to, to show my repentance because you are more desirable than anything else. You're more desirable than my bloodline. You're more desirable than my baptism. You're more desirable than church. You're more desirable than my pedigree. You're more desirable than everything. And I want to see you as the awesome God that you are. And I want to want you more than I want anything or anyone else. That's a life of repentance. And that's what Jesus will call people to. John's saying, get ready, that's coming. I am not He. I'm not worthy to carry His sandals. But He's coming after me and He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that fire burns away the desires for the other things that call our attention and affection away from Him. Are you the Christ? They would ask John in another gospel. He said, I am not. But he knew who was. And he pointed to Him. He heralded Him. Get ready. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. God, we sang this morning, Jesus is coming soon. May we be those who are preparing the way for the coming King. May we be those who are heralding the gospel. John had a disadvantage because he was on the wrong side of the cross to proclaim the true gospel. He did everything he could, anointed and empowered by you. But God, we have the very words of life given to us. We have the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Help us to be stewards of that gospel. Help us to be heralds of that gospel. Help us to live a life that shows the King is coming. And His winnowing fork is in His hands. And He will separate the wheat from the chaff. Gathering the wheat into His barn and the chaff burning with unquenchable fire. God, may we be people who model repentance. And if there is someone here this morning, God, that has not repented of their sins and turned to Jesus, I pray that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, God, that You would speak life to them. And that they would know that Jesus is our forgiveness. And that they are sinners. And they need forgiveness in the death of Christ, the life of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the glorification of Christ is what they need to set their hope in that their sins might be forgiven, not just washed away by water, 
and that they would be baptized into the Holy Spirit and into fire. Save souls. Bring your people to repentance, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can though.